Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Having trouble getting comfortable in my chair, otherwise good. And also joining us today, hopefully more comfortable in her chair, is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you, Kyle? I'm doing all right. We're now on like week three of social distancing and of never leaving my apartment And I'm sort of in this weird place where like sometimes I'll like be sitting down and be working on something and just sort of like forget, like I experienced this today, putting together the notes. I just forget about everything else that's going on. And I'm like, oh, it's nice to be like working at home by the window, like it's a pretty day outside. And then you like stop and you're like, I haven't left my apartment except to walk my dog in like three weeks. Yeah, I live in this place of oscillating between like this is not real life. There's no way this can be real life. And then, oh my God, this is real life. This is a real thing that's happening to me and I am stuck in my house. Well, on today's podcast, we are going to discuss the latest on the state and federal response to the coronavirus. Got more coronavirus content coming your way. And then after that, uh, Kelly Leffler is now embroiled in a controversy over some of the changes made to her and her husband's stock portfolio leading up to the outbreak of this virus. So we're going to talk about that scrutiny that is currently focused on her and maybe a little bit increasingly focused also on David Perdue. But we'll talk about that. Um, So first, let's start with the latest on the coronavirus and the response at the state and federal level. And Megan, one of the most somber parts of this experience for me is this consistent release of data that shows the increasing number of cases and hospitalizations and unfortunately, sadly, the increasing number of deaths to this virus in our state. Um, What is the latest on the numbers um, today? Yeah, as you might imagine, they're not great. So just today, uh, we're recording on Tuesday, 35 more Georgians have died. Um, That's officially since Monday night. And that follows 75 deaths reported Monday. So in approximately 48 hours, that's over 100 deaths, um, which is just really sad. Um, that brings a statewide total of 329 deaths and 8,818 confirmed cases. Um, the greatest number of cases is in Fulton County at 1,124 And the greatest number of deaths is in Doherty County at 52 deaths at the time of recording. So it's all of those are really sad statistics. And I hope we can get the growth of those numbers to decrease soon. And all of this really underscores the importance of statewide action on this issue. So late last week, Governor Kemp finally issued a shelter in place order that mandated the closure of some public businesses and set limits on what people could leave their homes to do. But this order faced criticism from people who wanted him to adopt some stricter restrictions. Local officials have spoken out about wanting to be able to enforce broader closing orders, while some people down in South Georgia were really infuriated by the fact that Governor Kemp's order reopened some public places like beaches that local officials had previously closed. Um, So let's start there, 
with Kemp's order. Luke, can you tell us a little bit about what is in Kemp's order and some of the experience so far on how it's been implemented since it was put into place on April the 3rd? Yeah, Kyle, I think you did a pretty good job of covering the broad strokes of what uh, Governor Kemp's order does. And I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to me because he had been receiving so much pressure Obviously, for me, I was the deciding factor in this order coming out, I am sure, Um, but from a lot of other uh, sources as well. And after all of the heat he's gotten, after all of the pushback for not going far enough, after all the bad numbers that Megan just went through that we've had, but also in other places, he, you know, somehow finds a way of like screwing up what should have been a layup for him in overriding all of the orders of other places that have been ahead of the game and trying to do the right thing and going against what the CDC really is recommending, which is people stay at home. Yeah, I think one of the places that you're seeing this most clearly is on this emerging debate over what to do about beaches and parks. The mayor of Tybee Island said that she was devastated by the governor's order. She complained that there had been no single point of contact with the governor's office for enforcing this order. But I think the thing that most enraged her and other people down on the coast, and this also increasingly seems to be an issue for people in North Georgia who want parks closed, is that down there on the coast, the beaches are now open again. Now, you know, you may think about this and say, well, you know, this isn't really a time where tons of people really want to be going to the beach. And they did put into place some measures, not allowing people to bring chairs and all the all the kinds of stuff that you bring bring to the beach to have a big party. Maybe people who live there are just going to be walking on the beach. Um, but what do y'all think about the fact that beaches that were previously closed by local governments now have been reopened by this order from the governor? I think that it it's tone deaf. It shows that Kemp didn't either didn't think it through when he put his order in place or just decided that he was not going to enforce something that maybe he thought that people would be upset that the beaches were closed. I don't know. I can't, I can't really understand the motivation considering there are lives at stake. And I feel like we should like the government should be doing everything they can to preserve lives, especially since we've seen mayors in other countries and leaders in other countries truly shutting down cities and keeping people in their homes. So like we're not, you know, our measures aren't doing that. Our measures are saying that you can leave your home for things. They're not as stringent, but I feel like the least we can do is to close areas where people could gather. I think my biggest frustration in this is the lack of clarity that is starting to happen here because it is one of those things in Georgia since Kemp was so flat-footed and not doing anything. We created a culture in the state where we were going to take it city by city and let them lead the approach. And so for places like, you know, Albany that had really, really bad outbreaks, they took more aggressive steps and Athens took more aggressive steps because while our uh, number of cases was not as high initially, we just knew based off of the community that Athens is that we were very high risk for a really bad situation. And yeah, and Athens had a ton of deaths today. Yeah, attended a nursing home. 
Right, and I and I think the reason why it's not worse is because of the fact that we took really aggressive measures uh, fairly early, and you know we we developed that expectation around the state, and I think Kemp implementing this order is good. Mostly, it's just the part that overrides everything else the local governments have done is just really confusing. And it's not only confusing for like individuals, you know, people trying to figure out what it all means. It's difficult for the mayors and county commissions of these places because now they're unclear what powers they have to implement what they think the best policy is. And it's one of my biggest frustrations with how Kemp has been dealing with this crisis is that it seems like he's not listening to the right people. And what I mean by that, a very simple example, is that like when this started, when it was quite clear that we were going to have to start taking some dramatic steps to contain and mitigate the virus, Kemp, without hesitation, closed down nightclubs, closed down bars and places like that, which should definitely have been shut down, and that was the right thing to do. But it seems like it's very easy for him to do things that could hurt his political opponents, and it's really hard for him to do things that could hurt his political allies, like shutting down beaches, shutting down golf courses, and uh, you know other things like that. And I think it's because... Like, that's who he's talking to, right? Like, he, I'm sure he is talking to some medical professionals and he's hearing what Dr. Fauci is saying, but it seems like, you know, his friends who are with him on the golf course and his friends who have beach houses who fund and support his campaign have more of an influence on him than the public health officials sometimes just because of the fact there is this great hesitancy to take any move that could potentially hurt people that just, you know, on the macro trend are people who uh, look like Brian Kemp supporters and act like Brian Kemp supporters. And so, you know, I'm not saying that this is even an inherently political thing, that he's going out of his way to hurt his political opponents and out of his way to protect his political supporters. I'm just saying it seems like he's weighing those decisions in a somewhat political way using a political calculus and putting a political filter on those decisions and maybe i'm wrong but that's that's what it feels like and i think he could do more to remove me of that suspicion uh and he has yet to do that especially with him stepping on the toes of local officials a lot of them are democratic local officials but Plenty of them are very Republican as well. So uh, that that is one of my uh, chief concerns as well, and I'm hoping that Kemp can do more to remove me of it. You know, last show, I, I advocated what I'm now calling the Boggs approach, which is you just shuck everything down. You just can't do anything. And uh, I, I was reading an article that New Zealand actually did this, and I was so excited. Um, it felt like it was like an experiment for, you know, what I really wanted to see us do. And they've had, like, pretty good results. They have not only flattened their curve, they've, like, started to reverse it because they were just like, nope, we're shutting everything down. I don't really care how you feel about it we're just we're going all the way we can and they've had really good results with that and i i think we're going to get to the point where the momentum in the states where 
the really harsh shutdowns have happened will start to be going in a far more positive direction while the states like Georgia that are there's no other word they're half-assing it we're gonna still get worse and keep getting worse and keep getting higher numbers and they'll be like well we don't know why it's happening we can't do anything about it and I I just I'm just done with the half-assed responses here exactly well and even in Atlanta a city that kind of got ahead of things and had a relatively, uh, I'll say relatively using the strongest version of that word, um, early response with a shelter in place order, at least it was at least before Georgia and Brian Kemp issued one, the mayor still hadn't shut down parks or the Beltline. And so there were pictures right after uh, Mayor Bottoms initially issued that shelter in place of people just packed on the Beltline because it was one of the first beautiful weekends we'd had in a while. And a, you know, a little while later on April 1st, Mayor Bottoms tweets a picture of like a practically empty belt line. But I want to remind everyone that that picture was taken at a very strategic time um, on a weeknight. And, you know, people may not ha- be having to like get up and go to work necessarily, but it's still a weeknight and it's getting packed on the weekends. People were reportedly there this weekend going to the bars along the belt line like there was nothing going on. And again, it feels like the least we can do to shut down places where you can't maintain social distance. And on the belt line, it's what, 12 feet of sidewalk, something like that. Like there's no way to maintain social distance when it's busy. Even even not when it's busy, like when it's moderately in use, you can't really maintain social distancing. Right. And the thing that like irritates me the most about the, the beach reversal uh, is not that it's medically inadvisable, which it is, but it's just the fact that it, it hampers local government's ability to clearly communicate what they think is best for their people. And... The other thing is, it's confusing to individuals because when they're hearing mixed messages, like the governor of Georgia saying, yeah, you can go out and do some outdoorsy things, uh, which, you know, honestly, if you went to the beach and you stayed far away from people, you probably be fine. But right now we're having a trouble. We're having trouble in the state of Georgia getting people to comply with the basics of shelter in place. And so I feel like making it really easy for people to understand that, like, you should be in your house as much as humanly possible and, you know, not be around other people that aren't in your household as much as humanly possible. That's a much easier message to get people to understand the severity of more than like the wishy-washy stuff we've been getting from Brian Kemp. And, you know, again, I will commend the local governments because they've been really clear. They've been unambiguous and I've appreciated that. And it's not a party thing. It's a lot of Republican government, local governments have been great on this and they have just been like, no, we're, we're taking this very seriously and we want you to stay home. And I just don't understand why Brian Kemp like doesn't get that because there's so it's not a party thing. It is literally just Brian Kemp. It seems like who doesn't get it. I think the other thing that is at play here, particularly for local officials, is a bit of a sense of helplessness on the fact that they are not in control of the entirety of the response. You know, one of the implications of something like leaving beaches open or parks open is sort of allowing this unnecessary risk out there for people to go to these places, not practice social distancing, make it even just marginally more likely that the virus is more spread in their community. 
but local officials are not in control of whether or not there are enough tests available to be sure that they are fully aware of the spread of the virus in their community. They don't have the resources to provide to hospitals. And we're going to talk about both testing and hospitals in more detail here shortly. But but local officials cannot deliver the full response needed to make sure hospitals have the capacity that they need if there is a more significant outbreak like you're seeing down in Doherty County. And the Tybee Island mayor, when she wrote this letter describing herself as devastated by the governor's order, she started it out by saying, as the Pentagon ordered 100,000 body bags to store the corpses of Americans killed by the coronavirus, Governor Kemp dictated that the beaches must remain open. I think they are thinking about how this could go terribly wrong and the fact that they don't have the ability, they can close the beaches, they cannot provide the capacity needed for hospitals if this thing goes terribly wrong. And I think that does give this feeling of sort of helplessness for the local officials that are are caught in this situation. Before we get into some of the detail on what the latest is on testing and, and hospital capacity, the other thing that came out of this press conference where he announced the stay-at-home order last week were remarks regarding the asymptomatic transmission of the coronavirus. And here is what Governor Kemp had to say during his press conference. I think it's the reason I'm taking this action. It's like I've continued to tell people I'm following the data, I'm following the advice of Dr. Toomey. Uh, Her and I both mentioned in our remarks, um, you know, finding out that this virus is now transmitting before people see signs. So the, what we've been telling people from directives from the CDC for weeks now that if you start feeling bad, stay home. Uh, those individuals could have been infecting people before they ever felt bad. Well, we didn't know that until the last 24 hours. And as Dr. Toomey uh, told me, she goes, this is a game changer for us. Ugh. What do y'all think? This just goes back to what I was saying is that, like, I don't know who Brian Kemp is listening to because I literally knew that this had asymptomatic transmission when it was still in China. Most diseases do. Yeah. Luke, the governor's staff tried to clean this up by saying that what he was referring to was a change in CDC guidelines regarding asymptomatic transmission, and that change in the guidelines was enough to precipitate stronger action particularly the statewide stay-at-home order. Yeah, that's not what he said. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's pretty plainly clear it's not what he said. The governor's staff uh, was very persistent about that's what he meant to say. But even that, to me, is suspect. What, you know, in what ways have we known about asymptomatic transmission much before the CDC actually changed their guidelines? Well, I mean, honestly, Kyle, I'm not going to answer that. I don't care. Because even if there was only symptomatic transmission, like... People, people don't listen. <laughs> people, people still would be out there and spreading it because not only, not only, you know, to to you know, be more fair to people, like it's not only that like some people are just stubborn and they're going to go out anyway, but it's like some people don't have the option to not go out. Um, you know, some people have to you go know, keep working uh, jobs or help other family members, and so it's it's harder for people do that and there's just so much evidence that like things are not going well as i've been harping on the whole show that like the numbers are not good i feel like this should not have been the thing that changed your mind well i don't i don't know that that's entirely right i think that if you knew for certain that asymptomatic transmission was not a possibility and you had 
a comprehensive, sufficient testing regime in place. Those are sort of the building blocks that would have allowed more limited closures or closures confined to certain geographic areas. That, I think, is actually why this is really important to hone in on on when people knew about this. The first sort of messaging from the federal government that asymptomatic transmission was a possibility came from Dr. Fauci in a White House press briefing on January 31st. He said that previously it was not clear whether an asymptomatic person could transmit it to somebody while they were asymptomatic. Now, based on a recent report from Germany, we know that that is absolutely the case. So this is where the thing that I wanted to highlight related to the CDC guidance is that even if you accept Governor Kemp's staff cleaning this up to say, well, what he meant was the CDC guidance and new projections related to hospital capacity and things like that. You already knew months ago that asymptomatic transmission was a real possibility. You didn't need the CDC guidelines to tell you that. You had other reputable sources telling you that. And that gets at that question of like, who is Governor Kemp listening to? How seriously is he taking this? You know, and whether or not this was sort of an after the fact justification for his reticence to take this order anyways, um, feeling like he just sort of got pushed into it. Right. Well, and the other thing that this brings up, at least to me, is the thing that we mentioned last episode and the thing that others have been saying, which is that there's no way like people keep saying, oh, well, doing too much is an overreaction. Doing too much is bad. And while I understand that, quote unquote, overreacting to this does do damage to the economy. The economy is entirely based on people surviving this and spending money. So then therefore the conservative thing to do would be to do as much as you can to prevent virus transmission and go from there. You know, there we can't prove that we have overreacted to this virus. We can only prove that we have underreacted. And right now, we're dealing with an underreaction. We're dealing with the, you know, ever approaching deadline of the hospitals getting maxed out if we continue to grow at this rate. So, you know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is if you can be more conservative, I understand the economy argument, but if there are not people to spend money or you know, if, if enough of the population is affected by this, you know, from a health perspective, then you have nothing to base the economy on. Let's talk a little bit about testing and where the state is at on testing. Um, Georgia continues to lag other states in the country in terms of the deployment of testing. An AJC analysis showed that Georgia was 41st in testing per capita, and that is despite the state being 11th in confirmed cases and 7th in deaths. Those figures come from the time that the analysis was done by the AJC last week. Um, so our our situation could have gotten even worse since then. You know, despite Governor Kemp's, you know, sort of trying to paint a rosy picture um, and balance out different interests related to the stay-at-home order, he has been pretty clear that the testing situation is not where it needs to be. Um, he, he did say last week, he said, we all know that the status quo is unacceptable regarding testing. He said he certainly appreciates the innovation of private companies that are trying to chip in on this. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on the deployment of testing um, and how you know that sort of piece in the puzzle fits into the overall response to this crisis? So it's pretty unquestionable that 
the testing and uh, personal protection equipment situation nationwide is in a pretty bad place. And the the thing that this has just made me think is that I'm I honestly think any other president but Donald Trump would have would be doing more right now would be asking more of public institute uh, public institutions and private institutions and would be really proactive on these things and maybe they fail a lot but they would try a lot of things and I just don't get the sense that Trump is trying a lot of things and why that comes back to Georgia is we're in this very strange situation where it does truly feel like states are fighting with each other and that there is no, in the same way that Kemp is not communicating to um, the counties and the cities and he's not, uh, you know, doing things in coordination with them, everyone's independent actors. And so I think the reason, probably the reason why Georgia is having such a hard time getting these tests is because Brian Kemp doesn't take this problem seriously. Uh, it's it's very obvious he doesn't take it seriously. It's what the whole, you know, 30 minutes of the show have been about thus far. Um, and I, I think that's probably why we're lagging, despite, you know, Georgia having a bunch of resources and a bunch of very talented, smart companies that could probably be helping us with testing and is a very large state and, you know, is not without financial resources. That's the only theory I have as to why we're lagging on those things. Um, you know, combined with the lack of an adequate federal response, because there is more that Brian Kemp could be doing because we see what other governors and other states, not just, you know, again, (laughs) this is one of those places where I'm being very clear. I'm not just saying Andrew Cuomo is doing a great job. He is, but like, the uh, Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, is doing a great job. Uh, Mark DeWine is doing a great job. Like, there's a lot of Republican governors who, like, are taking this shit seriously, and they're doing good jobs, and they deserve credit for it. And what, what I think what I'm seeing here that's really disheartening to me is what I was mentioning just earlier with the president. I think states are doing most states are doing just as much as they should be like they're they need to work just as hard as they're working right now then on top of that the federal government should be doing a lot more than it is but since we like donald trump is not going away before the coronavirus is going away and so you're in this environment when the federal government refuses to step up and unfortunately for georgia we're in the same situation where we have a governor that refuses to step up i'm not sure why that is and i think that's why we're we're feeling what we're feeling here because kemp is just not stepping up and not treating it this in the way he should be i don't know i don't actually fault kemp as much on the testing as i do on the stay-at-home order and the slowness on getting that order in place um and part of that i think is because we are now starting to learn about the drastic failure at the federal government's level in terms of rolling out a response on the front of testing. Um, The New York Times has done a big investigative piece. The Washington Post did one, Vox did one. And I think pretty consistently across these, you're learning that early on in the response, the federal government had very little focus on testing compared to issues like banning travel from China and other nations where the virus uh, started to peak early. They were worried about bringing Americans home that were stranded in China. They were worried about dealing with the cruise ships. All of those to varying degrees are important issues, but that meant that they lost a ton of time on testing that they really couldn't make up after the fact. 
Um, it also comes to light in these reports that agency heads were really slow to actually push this issue and push action within different federal agencies that have different pieces of responsibility for rolling out a nationwide testing system. And that failure was further complicated by the fact that the White House was not super engaged on the issue of testing. Um, People might remember during the Ebola outbreak in 2014 that President Obama appointed Ron Klain uh, to be basically the Ebola czar. He was somebody who you know, you may have never have heard of, you probably had never heard of him prior to that, but he was somebody had. who had, <laughs> <laughs> why was he in like Cairo's book or something? No, uh, Ron Kling has done the debate prep for basically every president since I think Bill Clinton. He also read, uh, la- uh, re- uh, led, he also, he also led the recount effort in 2000. He was That's both right, Al yeah. Gore and Joe Biden's chief of staff. Ron Klain's one of those guys. He just pops up everywhere. Huh. And the degree of his expertise that really proved dividends in the response to the Ebola outbreak was his knowledge of the functioning of federal agencies and his ability to go to agency heads and say, look, the president wants you to get this done. I'm going to be here watching you until you get it done. And that is sort of like the nuts and bolts of how things move in the federal government. The Trump White House did not take those kinds of steps. Um, And then when they did, when they made Vice President Pence sort of the overseer of this effort, it was already a little bit too late. Um, The other piece of that is that some federal agencies sort of held up the private development of tests. And when you look at what Governor Kemp is trying to do in terms of increasing testing in the state, is he's most frequently looking to private providers to create tests, to have you know to have test like drive up testing facilities uh there's one um that is going to pop up on georgia tech's campus Um, it did it did pop up there Mm -hmm. um a lot of these are like private-led efforts and that's sort of the lever that governor kemp has to pull that action was all delayed because of the failure on the federal level um and so that's why i don't place as much of the blame on him I want to be clear that I definitely blame the federal government significantly more than I, I blame Kemp. I just feel like there's still more that he could have done. Part, part of my big problem with everything, with how Kemp has approached this, is that there's just he just doesn't seem very confident in the responses that he's making, and he feels like he's being dragged into saying everything he's saying. It does. I agree with that. And, and like it's just it's just weird to me. Like I don't understand it. Like I, this is a strange thing I'm about to say. I'll give Donald Trump credit that like he he lets Fauci talk. There's lots of things it's very obvious that like he doesn't want to talk about and he's not very confident in. And he just steps back and it's super awkward and he just lets Fauci do his thing. Who then politely somehow manages to disagree with Trump and Trump doesn't seem to notice? Question mark. Oh, I think he notices, but I think he also has just, like, realized that, like, he's finally found something, like, he's finally encountered someone in the federal government that he can't fire. <laughs> it's just, like, there's no way he can do it, um, and he just, he's just trying to navigate that, um, but, you know, I, I think, like, I think Kemp really just needs that person who can, he can just, like, the things that make him uncomfortable, it can be, like, an authority figure of science who can, you know, Kemp can be like, I'm sorry, man, the scientist says I can't do it. Well, um, in theory, so, that should be too me right like trump has dr fauci kemp has dr toomey but i've also heard toomey say like 
completely incorrect information about COVID-19 as compared to what we were hearing from Fauci and the CDC versus what she was saying. So in theory, he does have at least a scapegoat. He can blame it on her to say she was wrong, but... He's well, I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not encouraging <laughs> scapegoating somewhat, but like, just I don't know. I don't know anything to help him be more clear because I feel uh, there. The reason, you know, the substantive point behind the like theater criticism is because I think a lot of people in the state, both like the private sector partners that we have, but also just like the people who aren't properly practicing social distancing now or hat men practicing it the the hesitancy and the like lack of very clear instructions from the governor in this i think is exacerbating those problems um you know even if it is the uh federal government's fault that we're in this situation i feel like there's more kemp could be doing both in his presentation but also in his you know actions and you know the, the state gave kemp a lot of emergency powers and i feel like they gave him those powers because they wanted him to use them to try to address these problems. And I, I just feel like there's more that could be done. I think the other thing that's worth calling out, though, is that much like we're having or experiencing a shortage of PPEs uh, for medical workers, we also have a shortage of testing supplies. You know, one of the big things that I feel like is maybe a little bit overlooked or at least not called out directly is that the ability to provide these tests is not only it does not only exist in the ability to have labs run this specific test it also requires this very specialized extremely long q-tip essentially and i was listening to a story the other day where one of the people producing this particular q-tip was talking about how it's not the easiest thing in the world to produce and it also has to be like a certain amount of flexibility and a certain length and all this sort of thing because they have to get like all up into your sinuses with this thing um, and so that's just something we didn't plan for this very well as a nation, right? Like if we had maybe thought about a pandemic in a little bit of a different way or a little bit more of an advanced way or saw it happening in China and thought to kind of up our response capabilities, we should have been producing more PPE, more testing supplies, as well as figuring out how to get hospital capacity up to where we were going to need it and figure out a way to stop the spread of this virus. We didn't do any of that. And so now the thing that we're we're running into barriers at every level, including just being able to get this very specific Q-tip. Yeah, and Megan, I think this tees up. I mean, we've talked about failures now at different levels, um, the federal government, the state government, private industry, to me, this type of crisis sort of suggests that the leader on this should be the public sector governments at every level that are primarily most focused with saving people's lives, preserving communities and economic activity, but doing so in a way that accomplishes all of those goals rather than private companies who may be chasing profit in various areas on these things. In your view, like, what would a better response have looked like balancing involvement of the public sector, governments at the federal, state, and local levels, and involvement from private companies? I mean, that's sort of like a big question that sits in my mind about this, where 
I would have want I would have hoped and wished that the federal government had performed better, but we talked about all the reasons that they haven't. I mean, what would a better response have looked like? I feel like the better response would have been for the federal government to essentially provide a foundation for the state governments and then private the private sector to build off of. You know, the, the federal government should have been, again, you know, I said this a second ago, when all of this was starting up in China, even if we weren't sure the virus was going to come over here, it should have been kind of a reminder of, oh, this is something that could spread. Let's maybe prepare a little bit. Um, and the federal government should have then taken measures, provided guidance, provided information, whatever was available, because we know a lot of information wasn't available at that time, right? At least about the virus itself. But we did know how we we already know how to keep viruses from spreading because we've handled things like the Ebola outbreak and we've handled SARS and we've handled other things. So the federal government should have been the leader in that and should have started encouraging increased PPE and increased testing supplies and things like that. And then on top of that, the state governments could then make some decisions based on their populations. And then the last piece of it would have been private, right? The, the private piece would have been anything that the states or the federal government needed to contract out because, you know, let's face it, this the federal government and the state government can't necessarily produce these items, right? They need to be contracted. But it doesn't need to be like an enterprise-led situation that then looks like this. these companies are ambulance chasing, right? These companies are filling a need. And so I'm not going to fault most of these companies for anything that looks like ambulance chasing because, quite frankly, they're doing what the federal and state governments didn't do and really what the federal government didn't do. So, like, yeah, it might look a little bit like a money grab, but, like, tell me who else is actually helping to solve this virus, and then I'll maybe listen to that. So we've gone a little long here. One thing I want to touch on before we go on to talk about our next topic is the this week began with the Surgeon General on the Sunday show saying that this week was going to be really hard. He described it as our Pearl Harbor moment or our 9-11 moment. And one of the ways in which it is going to be really hard in the state of Georgia is the increasing pressure that is being put on hospitals in the state. The AJC recently reported, and I should say we we relied on a lot of AJC reporting for this uh, this podcast today. They've done a lot of really excellent work covering this virus, this outbreak in Georgia from a number of different angles. So um, certainly go support their reporting if you can. Uh, but they reported recently that Emory Hospital is preparing for a super surge on April the 22nd. Um, at that point, it is predicted that there will be a shortage of between seven and 800 ICU beds across the entire state. Um, and that in the worst case scenario, hospitals just in Fulton County alone could be short at least 100 ventilators at a time. Um, there are other models that show that if 20% of Georgians become infected with the virus in the next 12 months, then most regions of our state are going to be over capacity on ICU beds. The state is spending money to add mobile medical units here. Um, but that is one place where, you know, I mean, certainly there has been a really terrible situation down in Albany, um, a lot of concerns about hospital capacity down there. But it, but it is possible that this situation becomes much more dire for hospitals across our state. Um, before we move on, do either of y'all want to say anything about 
the situation that faces hospitals right now. Yeah, I'm happy that you're pointing all that stuff out, uh, Kyle, because that is <laughs> needed context for why I'm so frustrated with uh, Governor Kemp now, because that that's what I'm looking down the barrel of, like the whole stake is, and I just don't feel like he feels that. Like, I don't think he is expressing the urgency and like deep cost that this is going to have to the state and to individual people and to communities and is already having this, you know, pretty negative consequence. And it's only going to get worse. And I just don't feel him doing everything he should be doing to prevent that or mitigate it or eliminate that possibility. And I, I just hate that I feel that way. Cause I, I really rarely feel that way when we're in a crisis like this. And that's that's what I'm feeling now. Well, and I want to say before we move on, I I don't know that that I look at the governor's public messaging and get the sense that he doesn't feel concern about this or doesn't feel anguished over the possibilities that are facing him. And I don't want to mitigate. I mean, this is a tough issue in terms of response. We have talked about places where we think there are strategic errors. I do think it's a bit overstated to say that he's not feeling this or or to the extent that we've talked about that like political considerations are involved. I well, I, I feel I think, for him well, a little what bit, I mean is but like, I think what, what I was going to say, Cal, is that like I feel like your actions tell me how you feel, right? And that he's had to very clearly be dragged into taking action and that when he's explaining taking action he's very hesitant and he very much seems like he doesn't want to be doing it I don't like that is where I'm saying I feel like he doesn't feel it I think that the thing that I have particularly struggled with is some of the invocations of politics on you know he closed nightclubs but not beaches because his supporters don't go to nightclubs or some of the descriptions of the red response to the coronavirus versus the blue response to the coronavirus. Like I understand, and I have been levying a lot of my own criticism of the specific actions, the specific strategic choices that have been made. I just don't want this to descend into petty politics to the extent that we lose focus on the strategic decisions that were made and the evidence that inaction or delayed action resulted in more people being infected, resulted in more people dying than would have been the case if people had acted quickly. Because I'm worried about further along in this crisis or in future crises, that the response will just be, oh, well, that's fake news. The number of people that are dying, that is just fake news. The models that show how this disease or future diseases will spread, that's just fake news. I think that we've walked up sort of dangerously close to that line at certain points during the current crisis. I think you see some elements of this in right-wing media, but you've seen validation of some of these ideas much closer to the political mainstream, much closer to decision makers like our governor. And I don't want that to become the new norm that crises like pandemics are fought over the same way that petty politics is fought over. I'm just very wary of where this is going amidst that context. All right, let's move on to our final topic. 
Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler has become the subject of intense criticism over whether she made adjustments to her stock portfolio based on insider information in the lead up to the coronavirus crisis. She dropped stocks in the retail sector while adding companies that made personal protective equipment and telework software. And amidst all of the criticism and political blowback to these choices, her and her husband announced that they were going to liquidate the individual stocks that they had and instead put their money into mutual funds. Let's talk about what the implications of this are for Senator Leffler, both on the legal front and on political optics. Megan, what are some of the details about what is alleged to have been done by Kelly Leffler and to a smaller extent, David Perdue? What are they alleged to have done with their stock portfolios in advance of the pandemic? So primarily, they're alleged to have sold stocks once they heard about the pandemic, which makes sense considering something like that would typically have a pretty big negative impact on the stock market. So she sold um, shares in firms like or retail stores like Lululemon and TJ Maxx. Um, And then but she also purchased shares um, and she purchased shares in a company that makes, of all things, protective equipment. Go figure. Um, and also another company that makes teleworking software. So it looks pretty damning in the sense that like these sales of stock and then purchases of stock align with what would have been affected by the virus. Um, she also bought and then abruptly sold shares in a travel company. And um, then she and her husband did some relatively complicated transactions, which I'll let Luke get into because he's a bit more well-versed in that. Uh, Purdue did similar things. He completed a lot of transactions, 112 to be exact. It's a three times increase over a 26-month period prior to the outbreak for him. He bought shares in places like DuPont and Nemours, um, which is a company that makes PPE. He sold shares in casinos, which makes sense because people weren't going to be going to casinos. But some of the transactions don't really line up with um, adding firms that were set to profit or dropping firms that were set to lose. So, you know, if you're, I personally wonder if some of the decisions like that were meant to be kind of plausible deniability, like, oh, well, see, I did these. So this clearly was unrelated. Um, or if it was truly unrelated, um, I'll withhold judgment, although I think probably most of our listeners know where I stand on that. You know, Kelly Leffler has gotten the most scrutiny, both her and Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina uh, were some of the earliest reports on trades that were made in the lead up to the pandemic. Um, Kelly Leffler has defended her stock trades by saying that she has no direct control over daily trading decisions, that these decisions are managed by an investment firm. But it has been notable in the press that Kelly Leffler, despite the bad PR that this is bringing her, she will not give any details about how her portfolio is managed, about who manages it and what company that they allegedly work for, or any direction given by her and her husband to the the firm that manages their portfolio. For her denials being that somebody else is doing it, it would be helpful to people to believe those denials if we could actually learn a little bit about who these people are, who the firms are that manage her portfolio. She doesn't seem all that keen to give that information out. Well, after uh, Kyle indirectly indirectly, uh, accused me of (laughs) politicizing things, uh, we are now talking about a very political topic of like what what are the repercussions going to be 
for both David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler and potentially Richard Burr. Uh, starting on the sympathetic side to both Purdue and Loeffler especially, uh, these are two people who have a lot of money and they are engaged in a lot of uh, very complicated uh, financial transactions on the regular. I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, David Perdue, like, ran a capital investment firm, and Loeffler's husband literally owns the stock exchange. So uh, do, doing a lot of big transactions is, is not uh, rare for them. Uh, the, the problem is the fact that it seems like it's quite possible that the reason why they made these specific complicated transactions uh, were because of inside information that they got um, from the Senate. If it was any other administration, I would be very concerned for their political futures. Uh, but considering the fact that this is the Trump administration and that, you know, this is just things that some people get away with, um, I, I feel a lot less certain. Um, I think it's important to remember that this is not dissimilar to parts of the Tom Price scandal since he was uh, accused of some um, some bad trades as well. He had a lot of other problems, a lot bigger problems, but that was part of it. So I think it really uh, is going to depend on just how much uh, more information we're going to be able to get. There's elements of this that might muggle the re response to this because I think the public outrage against the senators will will be really focused on them coming out financially better uh because of all all of it um for Loeffler um you know there's reporting from the Washington Post as Megan mentioned they did some financial transactions known as puts and to just not waste a lot of time going into very deep discussion of it, it basically they took a bet on the market and assumed that it was going to be better roughly three months from now and that very well might not be true so they very well might lose a lot of money um and so you know we're, we're just gonna have to watch this and see my instincts is that it's going to be amazing political fodder and i think this is quite arguably the only time Doug Collins, Matt Lieberman, and Raphael Warnock will all agree on something because they have all been brutal in their uh, you know attacks on Loeffler. And I think that, if, if nothing else, illustrates that this was some poor decision-making probably from Loeffler, but if not her, then the people that manage her assets and, and you know made this decision when they did. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, from a legal perspective, she could get caught up in... Um, insider trading. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. whether or not she used inside information to make these trades or to have people make these trades on her behalf. It is possible to get prison, prison time for insider trading. Chris Collins did after really sort of blatantly encouraging investments based on inside information. But it, it seems unclear, at least based off what we know now, that that, that situation is really what is what is presented for Leffler or Purdue. The Senate Ethics Committee is probably going to look into this. Senator Burr requested that his own trades be looked at. And so you can imagine that there's a whole group of senators that have made trades. And it's not just Republicans. Uh, Dianne Feinstein, a Democratic senator from California, also made trades. Um, but it does seem like the repercussions here really are much more political than they are legal. How do y'all think about how this might play out in this election? And particularly given the response that we're seeing, um, a, a somewhat bipartisan response from people like Collins, 
Warnock and Lieberman. I think Leffler's toast. You think so? I, I really do. I think Leffler's toast. I think that she was already on thin ice um, just for kind of seeming out of touch, but also for the fact that Kemp appointed her when what it really looked like for a long time was that he was going to appoint Collins. And it really felt, you know, even as a non-Republican, um, it it really felt like Collins was going to be it. And Collins had, you know, paid his due and Colin de- Collins deserved it. So, you know, you already had like those nails in the coffin for Leffler. And then all of a sudden you have this, which just looks terrible from any angle. Um, you have a few very right wing people who are defending the people that made these stock moves and, and you know who are trying to say that oh this had nothing to do with the virus and stuff, stuff like that so you know she will get some votes and i think it will be a you know she might she might still be a contender but i do think that for all the reasons i previously mentioned she's toast yeah i, I think i have to agree with megan here um i mean david Ralston, the republican speaker of the house of georgia was quoting as saying a lot of people are going to associate these activities with some very fine candidates running for the Georgia House, and they're going to hold it that against us, end quote. And, you know, obviously it should be pointing out he supports Collins, and, you know, beating Loeffler of the head with this is something he wants to see happen. But, I mean, it's not like Loeffler was some, like, rock star, rising Republican politician that, like, he she's no Marco Rubio, <laughs> Marco Rubio jokes aside, but, like, she just isn't. Like, she's not someone that, like was becoming a big national figure, like someone like Joni Ernst or, you know, uh, even um, the... Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, but I was also going to include uh, the senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley. Like, she just, like, she's a nobody. (laughs) As much as, you know, one of a 100 people who are U.S. senators can be a nobody. And she's a nobody in the state of Georgia. It did not make sense when Kemp appointed her then. It makes less sense now. She's becoming a liability. You know, with David Perdue, one, I will say, I have not looked incredibly deeply into this. I don't have any insider information from what is public and from what I've, you know, what we have uh, seen from the AJC and national sources. It seems like what Purdue did was less blatant if he did do something wrong. Uh, and, and you know, like I think Purdue and uh, Burr have a lot stronger chances because there's a lot of positives for them if you're a Republican. For Burr, there's a lot of positives for him, if, you know, on how he's handled uh, some of his Senate duties. Whereas with Loeffler, she's literally being attacked on both sides for this and was already in a pretty uphill battle against Collins and Collins for a lot of people on the right. He's one of those Josh Holly rock stars. And so I, I just really think she's, yeah, I think she's done. I'll be, I'll, you know, I don't wear hats, but I'll buy one and eat it if she survives this. And I don't mean to say like a Democrat's going to be, I mean, I think Collins is, is a layup for him now. Megan, the statute that governs, these issues for members of Congress is a statute known as the Stock Act. It really actually doesn't create any law by itself. It just reaffirms that existing insider trading provisions apply to members of Congress. They are not exempt from this. That, in essence, sort of makes it kind of a middle ground in this discussion, with some of the boldest proposals suggesting that members of Congress should not be able to own stocks at all. Do you think that members of Congress should even be able to own stocks and and get themselves in this kind of situation? I am not well informed enough to take a hard stance on this, but what I will say is this. 
it does give me pause to think that people with a lot of say in potentially how this nation's economy can behave based on laws that are passed um, and people who are very well informed, much more informed than the general public, can have such a stake in the stock market. It does feel like insider trading and you know, working for a large corporation, that's something that we're actually trained on as a as a thing that we can potentially get in legal trouble for. So, you know, I feel like the senators and such should be, you know, I, I like that they are bound by the Stock Act. I think that that's a good measure. But unlike most of the general population that works for a large corporation, like I said, they do have a lot more exposure to information. And I would prefer to see some more, like a more diversified mutual fund as their stock behavior, something that's a little bit less picking and choosing companies based on what's going on, just as a more of a fail safe. Yeah, to kind of follow up on that, I, I think, you know, our, our obligatory per episode mourning of the loss of Elizabeth Warren is, is here now because her anti-corruption uh, efforts are, are something that would be very much appreciated right now. And um, I, I think, both for the president, but also pretty much all the members of Congress. You know, public service is just that, a public service. And I think um, keeping them access to, like, the stock market and stuff is important because, I mean, that's how most people build a, a good... The people that have a good retirement in this country do it through the stock market. I think that's unfortunate. I think there's other ways we should do it, but, like, that's the system we're in right now. And so I think just, like, making the rules a lot tighter on them so that they basically, you know, I, I have a retirement account that I just throw money in. I never touch it. It just automatically, you know, handles it. Um, and I think that's probably what they basically should do as well and um, put them in a very, very blind, very secure trust with, you know, very... Uh, strict rules on how, how they do it if they are people like Loeffler or like Purdue that come into the Senate with really significant wealth um, because it's just a bad look. Because, like, let's pretend that she did nothing wrong. This headline is bad for government, especially right now, because people are really pissed off and people are frustrated. And if she did nothing wrong and it's just, like, a lot of really bad things happened in a row for her to make it look like a really, you know, uh, shaggy thing to do, having people frustrate about the government in that way and lose trust in the government, it isn't worth it. So to me, I would, you know, this is, this is a place where the cure is not worse than the disease. And we could just, uh, you know, put a little more controls on it. And I think we, we get a lot of benefits for it. And would, you know, some super rich people make less money? Yes. But I don't think that's a, the worst thing that could happen. All right. Well, I think that is a good point to close on. Uh, we will be back again next week. Um, I think chances are we'll probably be talking about the coronavirus, um, given that it is likely to be a big part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Hopefully, if governments get their act together and actually get the response measures in place, we can shift our attention to other issues. I mean, believe it or not, there's a presidential election in November and uh, the State legislature oh, is up for grabs. Wisconsin's voting right now. I totally Wisconsin forgot. Wisconsin oh, voted yeah. today uh, amidst a pandemic. They did that primarily over a Republican power grab related to their state Supreme Court. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things going on that we, um, I think, rightly Next time are on setting Peach aside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think rightly are setting aside. Um, but we hope to return to those issues soon. 
Uh, in the meantime, we hope everyone stays safe. And uh, Luke and Megan, thank you so much for joining today's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Wash your hands, stay inside. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all. We'll mm-hmm.